Um, this morning we are continuing our series in um, the book, at least the first two chapters, or three chapters rather, of Revelation. And we've named this series The Seven Challenges of the Church, in which we have been for the past several weeks going through, looking at, through the messages that Jesus gives each of the seven churches in modern-day Turkey, actually, and, ex- and sharing with them, acknowledging the fact that they, he knows the challenges that they are going through. And what I love about what Johnny just prayed for, I think is absolutely true, that Jesus knew we would be here today. He knew exactly what seat we would be sitting in, um, even if we didn't want to sit there because someone else was sitting in our seat today, um, all that kind of stuff. He knew that we might get coffee beforehand. He knows, actually, when some of you are going to go out to go to the restroom and grab a cookie. <laughs> he knows. He knows. Nothing is amiss when it comes to Jesus. And I love the fact when Jesus says this to his disciples, he says, listen, as they're worried about, you know, just basic getting through the day, just basic necessities of life. And he says, listen, my father, he knows when a sparrow falls. Do you not think that he will care more for you than for that sparrow? Yes. It may not seem like it, but it is true. And so we have been looking at the fact that as church, as a church here, as church in general, that there are challenges we face. And let's, let's be honest, just, they're not the only seven challenges that churches may face. There are certainly many more. It's just not here in the book of Revelation. And I love the fact that we get to look at this. And, I, and I've shared this before and I'll share it again. I love being a part of the church. I really do. And I've shared before, and I'll share it again, that the reason why is so many. Um, it's, it's just what I know I need, but also out of obedience to Jesus, that the church, whether it's here or church in general, is the bride of Christ. Jesus created the church. We didn't. Jesus empowers the church. We don't. Jesus is the one whose will will be done, not our own. He is the one whom we worship, not each other or not the pastors. He is the center. And I just love that. And I love the fact that it's not always easy sailing being part of a church. I love what Philip Yancey, author, says about the church. And he makes this observation. He says this. Family is the one human institution we have no choice over. We get in simply by being born. And as a result, we are involuntarily thrown in together with a menagerie of strange and unlike people. Right? You and I had no choice over who our parents were going to be and who our siblings were going to be, who our aunt and uncles were going to be, who our cousins were going to be, who our, you know, whatever. We just had no choice. We are thrown into that. But that's not so with the church. He goes on and says this. Church calls for another step to voluntarily choose to band together with a strange menagerie because of a common bond in Jesus Christ. You are all here today, whether you realize it or not, because you chose to be here today. You are here at Summit Ridge and a part of Summit Ridge because you chose to be here at Summit Ridge. And I'm grateful that you chose that. And you chose today to sit with people around you who have a variety of differences that maybe for no other reason you might not have anything else in common 
But because you're here, you have one big thing in common, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why we are here. We have that commonality of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says this. I have found that such community more resembles a family than any other human institution. Boy, I think that's true. I really do. Henry Nouwen, who was a late priest and author as well, once defined a community as a place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Oh, I, I'm not going to share anything new, I hope, with you all this morning, but I just want to share, nonetheless, the obvious, if it's not already. Church isn't the perfect place, is it? Church is a family, and like a family, we go through ups and downs. Like a family, we can praise and build and encourage each other, and like a family, we can tear each other down as well. The greatest amount of hurt, I believe, in a person's life, certainly in my own life, and the greatest amount of happiness as well, has been found in my family. That's it. And I think that can also be true for our life in Jesus Christ, that the greatest pain as well as the greatest joys can be found by being a part of a church. It's, it's no wonder then because of that challenge, and it is an incredible challenge being a part of a church at times, that, um, that the stats today are proving out the difficulties of being a part of a church. It now is that 28% of Americans identify themselves as nuns, not N-U-N. Okay, and I'm not talking nuns, I'm talking N-O-N-E, nuns, as in they have no affiliation or, or any sort of identification as a Christian. They prefer to be just, no, just identified as a nun. They're neither Catholic nor Protestant. They're neither evangelicals or mainline. They're none of those. They just simply identify as nun. And it's the first time, probably since this has been tracked and surveyed, that now all of a sudden the nuns are outpacing Christians. The next biggest group is Catholics, and that's at 23%. Or 24, somewhere in there. But who's counting? That it's just, it's just how it is. And, and not only that, here's another challenge in being a part of the church life. Is that, and this was another um, kind of re reality, and this is probably more so than anything about abuse, which certainly happens in churches, which is awful, whether it is spiritual abuse, physical abuse, whether it is corruption in the church, whether it is leadership that's not being held accountable for the things that happen in churches. Those kinds of things certainly drag people away from the church. But there's also another more benign, if you will, reasoning why people are slowly and slowly moving away from church. And that is simply because the life we live today here in this country doesn't lend itself as easily to being part of a church as it once did. We have more and more choices this today than we've ever had probably in the history of our country. In other words, to say yes to the church means we have to say no to 10 other things. It just doesn't jive or meet up well with the kind of life that we live today as Americans. And that is perhaps, is, is, is perhaps maybe even more sad to me than anything else, is that it is the more benign reasons, the reasons we don't even see, the reasons that are just there but they're more harmless 
as to why people more and more seem to be moving away from the church. And so this morning, as we come to the next challenge, I've titled this message this morning, Remaining Devoted to Jesus. And I do not want you to equate that the remaining devoted to Jesus means that the only way that that can happen is if you are completely devoted to a church. They're not necessarily the same thing. Being part of a church is absolutely incredibly important to remaining devoted to Jesus, but that is not the only component. So do not think that I am saying the only way you can be remain devoted to Jesus is by being a part of a church. That's not what I'm saying, although it's an enormously important part. In fact, I've said this before, I'll share it again. I don't know how someone can remain devoted to Jesus and growing in their faith in Jesus without being a part of a church family in order to make that happen. However, that being said, it is difficult at times for us to be devoted to Jesus for all sorts of reasons. And this morning, as we look at this message to this church, we're going to find out an additional reason of why it can be difficult for us to remain devoted to Jesus. And I understand there are theological differences about whether someone comes to know Jesus or whether someone is chosen by Jesus. I understand that. There are volumes and volumes of works that have been written and, and endless debates, it seems like, written about whether or not we are chosen or whether or not we choose to come to know Jesus. Whether or not Jesus, um, all of a sudden now, if, we, if someone loses their faith, if you've been chosen, then were you really chosen and this is the world I swim in and live in. You're welcome. Um, and so it leads to some really interesting theological discussions. And so I, we're going to set some of that aside, although some of that might crop up here, but not by much. I'll keep it at bay as much as I can. Um, you're welcome. Um, but nonetheless, I want us to take a look at this message that was sent to this church in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And as we look at this, I'm going to read the passage. It's only a few verses. I'm going to read chapter 3 in Revelation, beginning with verse 7 through verse 13. And Jesus is again sharing a message to a church that was struggling. And it is one of the few messages, it's only one of two actually, that Jesus has nothing critical to say about this church. Nothing critical. They are doing nothing wrong. But as we're going to see, they are facing an enormous challenge of remaining devoted to Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want us to take a look at what that challenge is and what, how Jesus responds to them. So let me read this passage. Here's what it says at the beginning of verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the following. By the way, just an aside, Philadelphia, uh, again, not too far from Sardis on the coast of Turkey there. And um, it was interesting. It was named after two Greek brothers who were rulers the older brother who died and the younger brother who took over. And the reason why it was named Philadelphia is the younger brother had shown such devotion to his older brother that the city was given that name out of reverence for how this younger brother had shown just unbelievable devotion to his older brother. So it goes on and says this. This is the solemn announcement of the Holy One, the true one who holds the key of David. I'll come back and explain what this means who opens doors no one can shut, and shuts doors no one can open. I know your deeds. Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, 
but you have obeyed my word and I have not and, and I and have not denied my name listen I am going to make those from the synagogue of Satan that's not the first time we've seen that phrase who say they are Jews yet are not but are lying look I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never depart from it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, that comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name as well. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. What a message, right? Here is this church in Philadelphia that is hanging by a thread it is struggling now we could surmise a little bit about perhaps why it was struggling uh, first of all just by just a, a really practical nature Philadelphia was in an area of Turkey that was prone to earthquakes so much so that quite frankly the structures there in that city never quite ever healed from cracks in their walls because there were so many tremors on a regular basis. There were so many earthquakes that oftentimes people didn't actually live in the city, or at least the majority of them. Most of them lived in the countryside because it was safer there. And yet they lived there because the land was fertile. They could grow grapes and have beautiful vineyards that would make wine and that they could also have crops. So it was an irresistible place to live because it was fertile land and they could grow many, many things as a result of it. And so doing so, they took a risk of living in an area that was prone to earthquakes. In fact, there was an earthquake there that was so devastating that the emperor allowed them not to pay taxes for five years in order to rebuild. That's how devastating. Now, you could say, wow, that's a really struggling church. Every single day you have to worry about, I mean, oh my gosh, we're going to have an earthquake. But let's be honest, everyone was worried about that. That wasn't just a church issue. So let's just set that aside. That's probably, that's a struggle, but it probably wasn't the main struggle. As we see here at the beginning, when, when Jesus speaks to this church, he says something very interesting. He says this, this is the solemn pronouncement of the Holy One, the true one who holds the key of David. Interesting. What is Jesus speaking about? What is the key of David? And can I get this key? The answer is no, you can't get that key. I can't get that key. It's his key. David is the symbolism of the kingdom. In this case, the kingdom of heaven. In other words, and he says this, who opens doors no one can shut and shuts doors no one can open. In other words, Jesus is the one who holds the key in deciding who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is the one who says, you're a part of my kingdom, or he's the one who says, you're not a part of my kingdom. No one else has that authority, not even the church. No one. Now, how can we think that this may be one? And I love this. He calls himself the holy one, the true one. And he goes on and he says this, I know your deeds. 
Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. In other words, he's telling this church in Philadelphia, listen, I know what you do, and you're doing great things, and I leave before you this open door. You are a part of my kingdom. You get to come in. You get to come in. Now, this was probably important for them to hear because here it goes on and says this. I know that you have little strength, but you have obeyed my word and have not denied my name. This is what this church did. And it goes on and says this. In the face of this, verse 9, listen, I'm going to make these people from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews yet are not, but are lying. Look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, there was a synagogue there. More likely, um, obviously, Jewish people looked at the Christians who were probably former Jews, many of them, if not most of them, former Jews, going on and worshiping Jesus. And perhaps it might be easy to surmise, we don't know for certain, but it certainly might make sense here, that perhaps these Jews were saying to these Christians, you are no longer part of the kingdom of God. You are out. You have gone off outside of the will of God. God has chosen us, and you have chosen not to be part of us anymore. Therefore, you are now condemned. And Jesus makes it very clear, oh no, you're not. And not only that, he makes it very clear that those Jews who say that sort of thing are lying, and they will be surprised. Now, this should not be a bridge too far for us to understand or cross. How many of us have encountered judgmental Christians? That's a very benign question. Let me ask this in a different way. How many of us have been a judgmental Christian? And have said to someone or someones, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You stand, and, you're, and maybe they're, they're doing something that is contrary to the will of God. Absolutely. And we see signs like this all the time. The Super Bowl is this afternoon. I do not care about the Super Bowl this year. Um, I, I'm just being honest with you all. I don't care. I know. I know. There are some of you who love it. That's fine. Have fun. I'm going to be in a meeting. I'd rather be in a meeting than watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> but we know what happens at the Super Bowl oftentimes. You know, there are signs and all this kind of stuff. And we see these things at big public venues in which Christians are holding up signs saying things like homosexuals are going to hell. And they're even more crude about it. You know what, I wish someone would, ho would hold up a sign that says, judgmental Christians are going to hell. <laughs> if you're going to hold up that sign, you better hold up the other one. Whenever we get to a position of believing and deciding who's in and who's out, we have overstepped our authority, if we ever had it. This synagogue, perhaps in Turkey, was probably, maybe, most likely telling this church who was struggling, knowing that these were probably people they knew, probably even relatives, they, they were in their family, right? What did I say before? Sometimes the biggest hurt comes from those who are closest to us. And all of a sudden now, here they are worshiping Jesus, obeying his word, proclaiming his name, and in the midst of that, you have these Jewish people, the synagogue, who are probably friends and family members looking at them and saying, you are in God's judgment. You are not going to be a part of his kingdom. I, I love the fact that I hear, and I do it myself, that, oh man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God 
all these questions, right? How many of you think that? I think that's wonderful, right? But, but I, I forget to think about, you know what? I may be just as shocked to find who's there that the questions I have are going to be irrelevant. <laughs> what I think is so fascinating is the fact that, that is we don't get to decide who is in and who is out, but that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? It doesn't stop us from actually trying to exercise that kind of authority because, after all, I, I, I want to be with people I want to be with and don't want to be with people I don't want to be with. As I shared about community at the beginning of this message, it's a place where the person you least want to live with always lives. You ever thought about the fact that heaven might be a place where you have to live with someone that if, you, if, you, if it was here on earth prior to going to heaven that you would never have chosen to live with and now you get to spend eternity with them? Get ready. Get ready. I love it as Christians, not in the same way. Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Oh, but, but I can't wait till I'm finally in the presence of Jesus. I agree with you. But here's the other thing. We're not only going to be in the presence of Jesus, we're going to be in the presence of other believers who we never thought in a million years they would ever get up there. But we don't hold the key to the kingdom of David. Only Jesus does. There is perhaps... Nothing worse in a believer's life than to be told after following Jesus, after being obedient to his word, after proclaiming his name, to be told you're going to hell. I, I'm often asked, I shouldn't say often, occasionally asked, I'm grateful, only occasionally. Um, Dan, do you think such and such is going to go to hell? And my response is almost always, you know what? I am so grateful I don't get to decide that. I have no clue, and I'm going to leave that in Jesus' hands. He's the one who gets to decide it. He knows those people and, those, and that person way better than I ever, ever could. He's the one who gets to decide that. And there is nothing that produces a crisis of faith to be told that the life you are living for Jesus is the wrong life. There is nothing perhaps more earth-shattering than to have a fellow believer tell you that you are doing it wrong, that you're believing it wrong, that you are saying it wrong, that you are living it wrong. It is just soul-crushing. Incredibly soul-crushing. And Jesus comes to this church in Philadelphia and says, oh, no, 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 the tables are going to be turned. The tables are going to be turned. When I look at this, and I, and I read verse 9 here, in that I'm going to make you come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, I, I, I'm wondering what, this, what, what, what that might look like in heaven when all of a sudden now these Christians who have been so judgmental now have to face those who they've judged who are now in heaven, and they have to acknowledge, Jesus loved you too, huh? I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus loved them too. Brothers and sisters, let me just say something. And I'm, I might be somewhat controversial. I don't know. That's for you to decide and not for me. I'm just going to say it because I, 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 I believe it myself. Jesus loves every single person. 
He loves the Muslims. He loves the atheists. He loves the Catholics. He loves the pedophiles. He loves the rapists. He loves the murderers. He loves those who lie. He loves those who are self-centered, egotistical, and judgmental. He loves everyone. He loves the children. He loves the older people and everyone in between. Why does he love them? Because he created them. He created them. I have, uh, I've shared this before, I'll share it again. I was in the, one of the toughest classes I ever took in college was pottery. I took it as an easy A. It was anything but an easy A. Pottery. And so I made pottery. Huh. Made is an operative word. And I had to do these presentations of my work, and I looked at them and go, oh, this is just awful. Just awful. However, there are some pieces that I really, really, I, I, I love them all. But there are some pieces I, I also, I, I valued them all, and I kept some of them. Others of them, I gave them away as gifts. And I don't know what happened to them, but I gave them away as gifts. Um, some of them, and I'm grateful. My mom, she was moving, and I had given her some, some of my work, and she gave it back to me, and I loved it. I'm, I'm grateful she did not throw it away. And I have it at my home, and it's on my, my shelf there. And my family doesn't appreciate that work as much as I do. They simply don't. If it was up to them, it, it, they would say, let's just pack that away for now. But I love this work. This was beautiful stuff. I made this. I have a bowl, and I put a footer on the bowl, and it was like beautiful. And the glaze job, it kind of drips. It's just beautiful. I can't help to think that in some way Jesus sees that in us. Listen, I made you all. I put you on the potter's wheel, and I crafted you and I formed you and I love you there are other people that may want to put you away not me not me and so here is all of a sudden now we have this this idea that those that we think are not in the kingdom we may very well be in the kingdom and those that we think are in the kingdom we may very well find out they are not but we don't get to decide that and I love that I love that and so all of a sudden now Jesus not only says, guess what, it, the tables are going to be turned, but he also says this in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. I love that. Hold on. Persevere. Keep going. And the one who makes it, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. I mean, that, pers that person or persons, that church, will be a, 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 a standard, if you will, an example of the fact that they held on to the faith. By the way, just to let you know, the church in Philadelphia was the longest existing church out of all the seven. It held on. In fact, today, there is, there is um, some belief that there is a mosque now built there. Perhaps it is almost in many ways, built on the very site where this church existed. This church, however, ha held on. It was the longest existing church out of all the seven that Jesus addresses here. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
And he goes on and he says this uh, in, in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never depart from it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city my God of my God, the new Jerusalem, that comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name as well. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What I love about this is that this church is going through this journey of discipleship and following Jesus that in many ways can mimic our own journey. I, I want to share a little bit um, about a, a resource I came across. It's a, it's a book titled The Critical Journey. And it's a really fascinating study of discipleship and the stages of discipleship. It's not the book on discipleship, by the way. The Bible is, okay? Um, but however, I think it gives a phenomenal insight into perhaps stages that many of us who follow Jesus may go through. And that perhaps this church here and the believers here went through. And, and, and the first three stages are the most common stages that I, that I think that maybe most of us are familiar with. We come to know Jesus, stage one. We come to accept Jesus. What a phenomenal time that is, a phenomenal day. And we are excited about coming to know Jesus. And then stage two is all about learning about Jesus. Man, we are just growing. We join summit groups. We get into things. We, you know, we get in people's lives. We join a church. We get in, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And we just grow, grow. I mean, we're sitting there during the pastor's messages and you're just writing feverishly all the notes because every word from the pastor's mouth is just manna. I noticed not many of you are writing. I don't feel bad about that. And then the third stage is we begin to serve out of our love for Jesus. And we get involved in all sorts of things inside the church and serving and maybe outside the church and serving there. And it's a beautiful, beautiful time and we love it. And the church in, as a whole is oftentimes very, very good at those first three stages. And then we come to stage four, which is oftentimes known as the inward journey. And at the end of stage four, we oftentimes, if people are on this track, oftentimes hit a wall. And that wall often comes up from a kind of personal crisis. It could be a crisis of faith brought on by a divorce, a crisis of faith brought on by uh, losing one's job, a crisis of faith brought on by an illness, whether someone, an illness of yourself or an illness of someone you love that has that illness, or it's brought on maybe by the death of someone close to you. It's, it's some sort of perhaps some sort of personal tragedy that happens or some sort of crisis of faith. You came across something that really wrecked your world and you didn't know how to deal with it and you hit that wall and it's a very, very hard wall. And here's the thing about this wall. You, no matter what you do, you can't go around it. You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You just can't. So here's what oftentimes happens in those moments. One of two things happens to people who hit this wall. One is they leave the faith. They leave the faith. Or two is, they leave their local church and go join another church. And all of a sudden, when they join that another church, it's like, oh, I found Jesus again. But what they don't realize is they're just simply repeating the first three stages. And it isn't long, or maybe, before they hit that wall again. Before they hit that wall again. And there's only one way to get past that wall. You can't go under it, you can't go over it, you can't go around it, you got to go through it. And oftentimes in those moments, and I, I'm, I'm going to say something, perhaps another controversial thing here. 
it may not be enough, although it's still incredibly crucial, that not enough devotional time, prayer time, reading your Bible time is going to help you get through that wall completely. You need additional things, such as a spiritual mentor, maybe even a counselor, maybe even a therapist, maybe even medication to get you through it. It's that inward journey. That inward journey, by the way, is marked by your will meeting God's will face-to-face. And who's going to win? It's your will meeting God's will face-to-face. And those who work through this, and by the way, the, the steps I'm describing here could take years. Years. There are some, many, who may not even get to that fourth stage, not because there's something wrong with them, but because they have spent, it's wonderful, they spend so many years in the first three stages, it's great. But it could take years to get through that wall. It is where your will meets God's will face to face. But those who go through this wall, who allow God to do the hard work in their lives, bringing up things that need to be addressed. And that's the thing, brothers and sisters, that I think I'm not have always been very good about as a pastor. I'm trying to be about sharing is that when you come to know Jesus, if there are areas in your life that have to be addressed, trust me, they're going to be addressed. If there are wounds in your life that you have, trust me, Jesus wants to heal those wounds, but the way to heal those wounds is to rip off whatever concoction you have put on it. Whatever homemade remedy, whatever kind of bandage, whether half whatever it is, that you have placed over it to kind of say, okay, I've, I've, I've got that covered up enough, I can go on living. Chances are Jesus may want to come in there and let's, let's do this properly. And oftentimes, as you know, if a bone is healed incorrectly, what do you have to do? You got to re-break that thing. And that is hard. It is awful so that it can heal properly. However, those who have come out of it go into stage five, which is the outward journey. And that journey is very much the idea of being able to simply love others because you have experienced for the very first time a level of love that you know that God has for you that up until this point you have not realized. In other words, this stage is often described as losing yourself and finding yourself at the same time. And then the sixth stage is living out that life of love. And it is painful, difficult, not easy. This may not be everyone's journey. It's, I'm not saying it is. But I share that with you this morning because you are looking at a pastor and at a person who has hit that wall. I mean that really. You are looking at someone right now who is trying to venture through this wall. You're looking at someone who is as trying to get healed and as wounded and has operated out of my woundedness in ways that may not have always been healthy, may not have always been good, but nonetheless, trying to now address that Jesus is bringing stuff up. And this has been, for lack of a better way of saying this, perhaps the hardest three or four years of my entire life. Certainly, ministry. I remember when I first joined and got into ministry, um, there were stats that said, just hang into a church. After about year 12 or 13, it just gets a lot easier. They're liars. 
That wasn't my journey. You know what the temptation is for me? Oh, I think God might be calling me out. Time for me to go pastor a different church. It happens with pastors too, by the way. It does. But you know what the reality is? I don't think that's what God is saying to me. I've tried. I've asked people, oh, please, just give me something, some excuse. Nope. I got the exact opposite. Oh, for crying out loud. I'm seeing a counselor. Yeah, I've seen him on and off for years, trying to work through this stuff because it's hard, because it's difficult, because it's not easy. And the reality is I could go to a new place. I could change my environment. But you know what the reality is? I will probably hit that same wall again and again and again and again. And I share this with you, not to show off, but to share this with you, hopefully to understand that it's okay if you need help. It's okay if you are struggling in your faith. You're not the only one. The Bible is filled with people who struggled in their faith. Job is one of the most obvious ones. That man hit a wall. Hit a wall. Sarah, Abraham's wife, hit a wall. Never mind that she was old, but then being told that she was going to have a child on top of that. And it wasn't happening. I mean, Elijah hit a wall after dealing with the prophets of Baal, one of the most iconic stories in the scriptures and one of the highlights of his life and ministry. After that, he hits a wall. David hit walls, plural. The scripture is filled with people who hit these walls and this is where the real work begins. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know if you are here today and you are hanging by a thread like this church in Philadelphia was hanging by a thread, you're not the only one. You're in good company. And let me say this. I want to encourage you. Hold on. And let me also say this. You can't do this alone. After the service, I want to, we're going to have a time of prayer. I can pray for you. Other of us on the prayer team can pray for you, and that's a great start. But you may need more. You may need a counselor. You may need a spiritual mentor. You may need a therapist. And yes, maybe you might even need medication. Because what you're going through is tough. I have been in churches and have heard pastors talk about the evil of medication. And I want to tell you here today, I think medication could be a good thing. In fact, dare I say, even a necessary thing. And anybody who tells me, oh, Dan, you just don't have enough faith. Mm. I don't want to operate for my woundedness, but I will. <laughs> I, I just want to tell you, and maybe medication is not for you. It's, it's, it's totally, I just want to tell you, it's okay, brothers and sisters. It's okay if you're struggling. But just don't stay there. It's okay if you're hanging by a thread. You're not the only one. It's okay if you've got to ask for help because you know what? You ought to. Because it's not okay to travel this alone. It's not okay to be a disciple and not connected with other believers when you are struggling, even when you're not in your faith. I want to tell you, 
It's okay. And here's the other thing. I want to tell you what I love what Jesus says here. It won't last forever. It won't last forever. You might be going through some really heavy stuff, and I just want to tell you, you might not be able to see the end. That tunnel is dark for as long as you can see. And I want to share with you today, that tunnel will not last forever. A light will dawn. The opening will happen, and you will once again come out of this. Which is why I want to encourage you all. My personal opinion, in addition to reading scripture, which is really important, can I just encourage you all to read things by people who have been through the soup and have come out of it? I have encountered many Christians who have written books that, have you ever experienced any pain in your life? Has it always been lollipops and sunshine and rainbows? Seriously? Have you ever dealt with a crisis? You cannot simply think your way out of this. You cannot simply wish your way out of it. This is where the hard work begins, brothers and sisters, but it is so worth it. So let me pray for us. I don't know how to end this with a nice tiny bow on. <laughs> but I just want to pray. I want to invite our worship team to come up. Yes, you guys take the hand. See, we're just, we just do things like, we just know, like, oh, Dan's getting ready to stop. You can almost sense it. And I want to um, just pray for us. And I'm going to give us a blessing, but then I want to encourage, I'm going to have our prayer team come up, not during the song, but after the service. And I'm going to have Marianne also, she'll be back in the, in the room back over here if you want a more uh, quieter environment for prayer. Um, let us start there. Let us start there. Let us at least give you an opportunity, if you are going through some really tough stuff and you're at a crisis of faith, let us just affirm on you that you are not alone. That we love you. That we are here for you. And we will do our best to help. But hold on. Father, I want to pray for every single person here this morning. I am so grateful, Jesus, that you have brought us all together, that you have knit this community of, of people in such a way that if we were to ever do it ourselves, we would never have come up with this. But Jesus, that's the beauty of who you are. That is the wisdom that you have. That is the fact that you own the keys to the kingdom, and you are the one, Jesus, that is the final decider of who's in and who's out. Father, I pray for every single person here this morning and online who may be in a crisis of faith. They have hit a wall, Jesus, and they are struggling like I am struggling. They are going through some really tough things, like I am going through some really tough things. Jesus, I want to pray this morning that you would just affirm them this morning, that you see what they are going through. It is not missed, Jesus, by you. That you love them so much that you want them to experience that love in such a real and profound way that perhaps the only way for them to do so is to go through this wall and come out the other side. I pray this morning, Jesus, that... You would bring healing, that you would bring growth, that you would bring a sense of awe to every single one of us in the knowing in some small way of how deeply loved we are, Jesus, by you. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. It's your holy and precious name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. amen.